sex, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the speculative interdimensional vehicle, Sex in Space. Its mission, to explore new points of view, to seek out fresh opinions, to boldly go where so many have gone before, and still somehow manage to totally miss the point. Subscribe to Sex in Space, wherever quality podcasts are found. Hi everyone, and welcome back to Sex in Space. I hope you're all doing fantastic wherever you are in the world. Thanks so much for being with us today, and please don't forget to show your support by liking, rating, and subscribing. Your feedback means the world to us. Make sure to check out our TikTok account and Instagram for more great Sex and Space content. Just search for us using our handle at sexandspace.com. We really love hearing from you and talking with you, so please feel free to reach out in any way you like. Now let's jump into an awesome interview. For this episode, Jane was lucky enough to speak with Reverend Dr. E. Scott Jones, and I'm going to let her introduce him. Without any further ado, let's get into it. Today at Sex in Space, um, we are very excited to be joined by Scott. Scott is also um, Reverend Dr. E. Scott Jones and a senior minister in the First Central Congregation of the United Church of Christ in Omaha, Nebraska in the U.S. He has taught in the philosophy department of Crichton University and is the author of Open, a memoir of faith, family and sexuality in the heartland, which pretty much sums up where we want to go today with the conversation. (laughs) Um, Scott grew up as a Southern Baptist in the state of Oklahoma, where he earned um, a BA in religion and philosophy at Oklahoma Baptist University and an MA and PhD in philosophy from the University of Oklahoma. So he's a smart cookie. In 2015, Scott and his former husband celebrated the birth and adoption of their son, Fathering is the true delight of Scott's life. With you there, Scott. And um, Scott is an active activist, serving on not-for-profit boards for a number of organisations, currently involved in local clergy action network fighting for gender-affirming care for adolescents and reproductive justice in the state of Nebraska. In whatever you have of your spare time, Scott, (laughs) which sounds pretty busy life, you enjoy hiking, reading, gardening and home DIY projects and travel Come and see us, definitely. Scott, welcome to Sex in Space. Thanks, Jane. It's great to be here. So, Now, um, uh, to give our listeners some context, Scott, because we do have um, quite a broad range of people kind of tuning in and checking out what we do here, can you describe the world of Oklahoma, where you grew up, what it was like to grow up there? Um, so I grew up in a small town in northeastern Oklahoma that in many ways was not all that radically different from town my the way it had been when my mother had grown up in the exact same town. Uh, it was a very homogenous uh, Caucasian um, population, and that somewhat by design, as many towns in the southern part of the United States were. Um, historically. It um, was a town, you know, with lots of church, far more churches per capita than makes sense. Uh, so, you know, deeply religious people and mostly, you know, evangelicals, uh, some mainline Protestants and Catholics. Uh, it was a town that, you know, had a story pretty common to many towns across the United States and I think around the world in the 1980s that the, that the local factory that had been the engine of economic 
the economy, you know, closed because of a corporate takeover at the national level, and that devastated the economy and community of the town. And it's never fully recovered, though it's you know it's it's done its best to try to figure out ways forward. So, um, and that that trauma all occurred when I was a child. And, and it was one of those, you know, it was a it's a it was a lovely, you know, kind of middle white middle class um, place that you know valued family and and church and those sorts of connections. So, it in many ways a great place to grow up, though not with very broad horizons, and not um, you know, not the a cosmopolitan understanding of the of the world or humanity. Yeah, that's a pretty good description. Um, of a, a small community. Um, and so it, it, growing up in that world, um, you obviously grew up involved with the church from a young age. Yeah, I was a church geek from early on and just always fascinated by all of the, all of the things church-related. <laughs> and my family is one of those families that was there every time the door was open. So, uh, And um, so growing up in that world, how did your understanding of what it meant to be gay evolve as a child? Uh, I had no understanding of what it meant to be gay, I think, at that point in time. You know, in the 1970s and 80s, homosexuals were people you saw on television either, you know, once a year when there was some uh, news coverage of a pride parade in San Francisco or New York, or occasionally as a guest on the Donahue television program. You know, always kind of sensational and over the top and and, you know, not like us uh, people in the middle of the country. That being said, you know, as you get older and become a little more aware, uh, all of those small towns, you know, have their local gay people, and everybody kind of knows it, and are always kind of okay with their gay people, right? Um, as long as those people don't make a big issue. So there, you know, there was uh, organist of a local church, uh, local theater teacher, a couple of women who were roommates, uh, one of whom was a math teacher and the other a PE teacher, but, you know, that sort of thing. So, um, and as you got older, you became aware of the fact that, oh, there were these people, but, uh, but they sure didn't look like the people you saw on, on television. Right. So I don't think I had any real concept of it. I, I know that for myself, you know, early on, I I can remember my first real sense of kind of a se same-sex attraction at the age of four. Four? I, re I really do remember it. And oh, wow. having no concept for how to, I don't think I had a concept for how to understand that. For and so um, I love the way you describe the fact that communities often been completely comfortable um, and accepting, and it's normal to have sexuality of different types in in community, in some yeah. ways. Yeah, as long you know, as long, you know, but, I, you I know it, as long as they didn't make an issue, you know. I mean, at the time period, those folks, those folks had been like openly or publicly out, wait, you know, with rainbow flags on their houses or something that tolerated. Yeah, it's That's it's interesting. That's changed in I was, my hometown, like, which is nice to know. It, it's changed how? Oh, a couple of years ago, they had their first Pride Festival. 
you know, this is a town of 13,000 people. Uh, I, of course, had to drive home for it because it was just uh, a crazy idea that my hometown is. And, like, they have, uh, you know, openly gay op- uh, local Presbyterian minister and all sorts. It just, it, the climate has changed. So, as so much has, which is refreshing and wonderful. And so, coming in, being a church geek, <laughs> which I love as a term, and understanding yourself have, as having same sex attraction, how did you evolve your ability to be in the church and to understand that as part of who you are in the church? So, I think. In the time period I grew up as a Southern Baptist and in the churches I was in, they never, they just never talked about sexuality. I mean, even if I'd been heterosexual, they would have provided no real sense of self understanding. It was just not. So all the kind of really rabid anti gay evangelical stuff in, in American church life it seemed to come a little bit after my upbringing. So I didn't right. hear negative. I just didn't hear anything. Um, so, um, but I had felt the call to ministry and from early on, early childhood. And so, and began preaching at the age of 14, doing this a long time. Um, and the, um, and so I was, I had this identity that was very deep about, you know, who I was religiously and my sense of calling to my vocation career. Um, so then it, you know, when sexuality begins to awaken, it's like, well, that just doesn't seem like it's going to fit with this career. Um, and so I, you know, my real, I mean, looking back, um, you know, I obviously have regret. The one real regret in my life is that I much earlier in life did not uh, explore my sexuality freely and openly. Um, But it was a slow process for me. So there would have been a period as a young adult where I would have understood myself to be bisexual. And well, I clearly have attraction to men, but I'm going to choose not to pursue that because that doesn't fit with this other thing that I'm trying to do. It's true. Um, and it re- it was actually tw- 20 years ago this month when I finally, when that internal compromise <laughs> just wasn't working and right. broke down. And I realized, uh, no, I'm probably, I'm actually gay and I need to explore my true authentic self. And, and then when I did, it was, you know, yeah, this is who I, this is, this is me. This is who I am. Now I've got to try. Now this is the truth. I've got to make the other thing accommodate. And so, how did you go about making the other thing accommodate your truth? So by this point, you know, by two thousand and three in the United States, but things were different than you know the nineteen eighties, but still not uh, as ex- accepting as they would later come, and particularly in religious life. There. In fact, my current denomination, I think, was the only one that was at that time still that was ordaining gay and lesbian people. But I wasn't in that denomination at the time. So the, the, the short answer is I ended up moving denominations and came to one that I oh. could serve openly as a gay man. But at the time, I was in a Baptist church in Dallas that, at least for 
Baptist in the South was more liberal. And it had opened itself to, there were openly gay members within the church and within leadership positions, not with not in the clergy, you know. Um, and so that church had begun to like move in that direction. And so it was in some ways a somewhat safe space for me to explore that sense of self, but not fully and publicly. The, my senior minister that I worked for, I was an associate pastor in that church. My senior minister at the time was, he was, had been 25 years in that pulpit. He was in his seventies. And I think he just wanted to be able to get to retirement without a major controversy. Right. <laughs> uh, so he was okay with me being a gay man. It just didn't want to cause problems um, in the church. So, which meant that I then began, you know, kind of looking at what, what are other options? Where can I go serve my full authentic self? And then found church. And I went back to Oklahoma, served a church of this denomination, United Church of Christ, this liberal progressive denomination. And then I've been able to be openly gay Christian minister ever since. Very public. And, and, but, and it all and fit all the pieces together without having to really actually accommodate any of them. Fit, you know, authentically and well all those pieces. That's a really interesting, I mean, it's a really interesting story. And one of the things that you highlighted for us before we talked was, you know, your story is one of finding a way to be in your world rather than having to leave it in order to survive. And, and in some you. ways that's, yeah, and in some ways that's lucky, you know, in some way I, you know, I, I did not have a family that was ultimately cruel or rejecting, though, um, you know, I did have, there were bumps in that road as and uh and i you know i i clearly did experience moments of discrimination in the church and, and within the more conservative society of the american but but i've also found my places and my people put together you know, the, the supportive community where i can be myself it's an interesting idea to um to be able to contemplate switching denominations how well understood for young people who are in the church who are struggling with sexuality identity and and the response to that how much do you think people realize that they could actually find home in another church i think a lot of people have no clue at all whatsoever i think so many people grow up thinking whatever their faith tradition is that that that's it that's that's the way it, and um and have and they're aware that there are other denominations or whatever, but like I, I don't think most people have any real sense of like, the breadth and the variety and the diversity. And I mean, I mean, you know, middle-aged adults who are ignorant of you know such realities. So, um, so no, I don't think most people know that that is a possibility. And I'm of course always puzzled by people who stick it out in churches or denominations that don't accept them, don't welcome. I don't know why you would waste your time or energy in such a place, uh, particularly when there are all the time more and more that well, you could find it. So for those who might be listening, who are interested, who are um, in this situation, friends and family of 
what are some of the faith communities that um, might be good to connect with that do have um, a, a, a more liberal agenda and, and actually are safe? Uh, easier for me to speak in the Christian tradition, though there are some other faith mm -hmm. traditions as well, particularly you know, Judaism, Reformed Judaism, but even con conservative uh, congregations and a few Orthodox Jewish congregations are also a few, a few exist. Uh, but within Christianity, um, and the, uh, there is the Metropolitan Community Church, which is predominantly LGBT faith group that began in the 1960s before there was a place for uh, LGBT people in other denominations. My tradition, the United Church of Christ, has been ordaining gay men for over, and women for over 50 years. So it has been kind of the leading liberal and accepting edge in the United States. But at this point in time, at least the national denominations uh, of the, the Episcopal Church, the Presbyterians, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, all are accepting of gay people. You may have to find specific congregations here or there that are better at that than others. And of course, uh, the Methodists right now are splitting over the very issue. So you can find Methodist congregations that are and Methodist congregations that aren't. Um, it's the fight they're currently having. And uh, then there's, um, you know, there's always a few others kind of out there that are a little uh, smaller groups or non-denominational or just independent kind of. And I do think there will slowly be more and more, uh, uh, you know, well, just the news yesterday, the Pope's changing his views on the blessings of same-sex couples, you know, that it uh, it's interesting to see um you know, the, to, to be living through this time of, of change. Yes. I, I Being in history, um, there's some positives to it, huh? I mean, if there's other stuff happening around us, it's good to find some positives right now. <laughs> um, and so you, weren't, you mentioned before it wasn't necessarily a smooth path with family um, when you were identifying as coming out with them. Um, how do you counsel anybody trying to navigate that within a family situation? Yeah. I, uh, well, one thing I tell people is, um, it gen generally, and generally any person who's asking for advice and coming out to family, that that person has themselves spent some time dealing with their own identity, their own sexuality, coming to terms with it, and are now ready to speak that truth. Uh, and I remind them that just as it was a process for them to realize who they are, that it often is going to be a process for the people they would tell, especially if those folks have no clue and have not already been in, in some ways preparing themselves for it. So the reaction that you first get may not be the reaction long-term and lifelong. Another bit of advice is that they always have to kind of establish their own boundaries and expectations. If they're going to go into that conversation with people, that it is not their job to answer all of their questions about the Bible or Christian theology, but but maybe here's some resources that you can go look and do that research and reading work on your own. Um, but be able to articulate to family that here is what here is what is safe and healthy for me. I'm, I'm not going to entertain these sites, you know, these, these sorts of state, 
negative statements or condemnatory statements or any sort of like kind of check. Um, so if that's that, that's, I'm not going to be able to articulate to your fam If you have family that is a little more hostile, that be able to, these are my boundaries and expectations. If we're going to continue to have a conversation and then be willing to back those up with the family. I, so I always advise people that then you have, if you're going to, if you think your family might, not be okay with you being gay, then you do have to be prepared for the possibility of those relationships ending. So you have to kind of do that psychological work ahead of time to be somewhat ready. But it does, you know, if you know for a fact that folks are going to have religious questions, religious concerns, then it probably does help to have some resource, right? You don't necessarily have to have it in hand, hand it to them, but uh, these days you could, you know, obviously share things digitally, but just so you, that you have some way to, for that person to begin to kind of process and think through things. And, and if you have been a religious person, you've probably yourself already kind of gone through some of that. So you want people to say, here's what was helpful to me. I suggest it might be helpful to you. But again, that doesn't always work. So. No. And in terms of doing that preparatory work, which is good advice, are there um, particular online spaces or resources that do um, offer material that does allow for that broadening of the conversation? Of course you're going to ask that question. I feel like my resources are dated at this point. Because <laughs> uh, um, I haven't myself continued to read all of that sort of stuff, you know, kind of basic introductory stuff. So. Um, nowadays, yeah. like here locally, I recommend people to a certain bookstore that we're like, here's where this, this is where all the good resources. Are. Um, but there has been this website that was, when I was coming out, was really helpful. It was called, uh, GodMadeMeGay.com. And it had been, oh, yeah? you know, and it's still up there. It still exists. Uh, the, uh, it's, it's not, you know, kind of up to date, jazzy website. It's still very stuck in 20 years ago, I think, but, uh, it had been created by a 90, something straight former Southern Baptist minister who had, who I actually knew his name was Bruce Lowe. He was a lovely human being um, who realized that he was wrong about what he had thought and taught for years on. Well, actually he, he realized he had said and done things over years and had never studied. the issue. So he, he's right. when he was 80, he decided to go study the issue and that changed his mind. And so, uh, what he decided, he wrote up this whole kind of um, treatise of treating the different biblical texts that people often cite issues and and wrote it as you know this elderly Southern Baptist minister for you know, and then put it under this rubric that he thought people would be able to find GodMadeMeGay.com and and. Um, and it helped a lot of people. And it was for years, that was the one I gave to people. And that was what I recommend, particularly from a more even American evangelical background, because he spoke that language. I think that's um, brilliant. What a lovely story. And that ability to kind of accept that you'd been working in a space without having full knowledge or that you've got new knowledge and therefore you're shifting your position. And that, I guess, you know, for those listening that are trying to deal with um, 
what their young people are bringing to them or what friends or family are bringing to them and, and you don't understand it in a China process, um, education is activism, right? Yeah. I hope and, that we're, we're all mentally nimble at 80 to change, <laughs> change our views <laughs> on something. And so you are an activist. Um, and yes. so do you want to talk to us about some of the work you're currently involved with? Well, uh, the people listening may be aware that, uh, you know, in the United States this last year, we saw a lot of anti-trans legislation introduced in conservative state legislatures. And a lot of that targeting um, trans and non-binary adolescents and children. And so, and uh, Nebraska was included within that. We had a bill that would have, in its initial version, would have banned gender-affirming care for adolescents altogether. What finally passed had some compromises and changes, but still isn't isn't great. And actually, when it finally when it finally passed, it did both that and banned abortion in the same bill because they crammed those two in one bill. We mobilized a broad spectrum of civil society here in the state of Nebraska to oppose this legislation. Numerous religious denominations, Fortune 500 companies, the Chambers of Commerce, every single medical association, psychiatric, psychological, pediatric, you know, everybody, all of the, the local, you know, the state medical corporations, you know, I mean, it was an impressive array of who opposed this this legislation, and it still passed. So, and it was agonizing and excruciating. To I spent much of the spring going weekly to our state legislature, which is about an hour or so away, and, and the final, but the day of the final passage, the. The state capitol building was just packed with queer and allied people chanting and singing, just trying to make their voice heard. Then at the moment that it actually passed, a massive die-in of people, everybody just laid down. And it was heartbreaking. So, And so now we're gearing up for next legislative session and what happens next. So... How do we try to prevent from getting Yeah, it's a long journey, huh? And I think that, you know, for those out there who don't vote on key issues, like get active and it does matter. Um, you know, it's Iran is my poster child for a country that can change so radically that you can't even recognize it. And you can see communities lose so much power, so many rights. You know, you, you can yeah. think of society's inevitable trajectory or, or is inevitably going to progress. We're going to get better. We're going to evolve better. It ain't like that. It doesn't, no. And we have Not to fight for... It only gets better for... if we make it better. Exactly. Exactly. And, and so that kind of example of communities coming together and working together... Um, I think that is, is a really positive um, response and a model for change in terms of how we progress. 
what's the model for change in community when you've got like disparate groups coming together how is there a framework for how to achieve that where's the hub of energy for for making that work uh here locally for the this particular effort the hub of energy is we have a, a really good and dynamic uh, statewide LGBT advocacy organization that right. uh, with really effective leadership who has kind of spearheaded uh, all of that effort and then the different sectors within it. So we have a group of um, clergy who meet uh, together as the clergy and then kind of then intercept you know, with kind of what the the advocacy organization says, here's the piece, you know, we need you to take on, or here's how we need to use you effectively in this particular role. So it does help to have, um, you know, an organization with good, strong, smart uh, leadership who can then uh, find the various assets within the community and get those organized within their particular sectors to do that sort of work. And I think one thing that, you know, the churches can be, churches become, we as clergy are not part of it is we are trained to be public speakers and we are trained to, you know, do um, kind of persuasive work. And some of us are better at being spokespersons and lobbyists, but we're also trained at the, at the care aspect. So some of what our role in these settings is, is to just to be present. Hence, you know, chaplains to other people who are yeah. there and that are hurting in, in the moment. And then, of course, the fact that we then usually we have congregation, we have whole communities, and the members of those churches are the members of the wider community. You know, they're out there working and teaching and business people and leaders and all that. So we have the we have our networks that we can hopefully also call on to do what they can in their professional and personal lives to help participate. Yeah, that's a um, and that's a, a I think a really nice model and a, and a good point. Um, you know that looking for where the strength is and building out the networks and and getting involved if you've got the energy for it. So many of the people like yourself we talk to um, commit to activism and just give so much of themselves to that. Um, so you know, giving some energy <laughs> in support and well, you have to seeing what breaks. you can do. Yeah. The, after the legislative yeah. session ended, as I described you so hard, I mean, for two months, I didn't do any of that sort of stuff. I just, I just had to have me time, dad, you know, be, time to be a dad and take a break. Yeah. And um, so now you've had a bit of a break. What are your aspirations for what you'd like to try and achieve over the next forward we will a good answer to that question because uh, it's it seemed we were so much in the kind of reacting to what's happening in the moment um i one thing we are doing here in nebraska is that we are hoping to get on the ballot uh, a reproductive rights bill to overturn the abortion ban that the legislature passed right. because those are having a good deal of success uh even in conservative states here in the United States, because now that the right's being taken away, even conservatives are sure they want the government making healthcare decisions for them. So um, 
So we are hopeful that doesn't solve the gender affirming care uh, bill part of the problem. But if we can get, um, if we could get a good, if we could overturn the anti the abortion ban and get some establishment within the law of freedom of people to make their own health care decisions, then hopefully we could build on that to argue, well, then it is also a matter of these health care decisions that, you know, adolescents and their families um, yeah. need to be able to choose gender-affirming care as a health care choice. I, I, hope, but I, I hope sincerely that that is what starts to happen. I, I think you said something really important before um, about having been put in this place of having to react to what's going on and, you know, back um, in the sort of 70s, 80s, 90s. I just went to an exhibition in London when I was over there about um, activism in, in the in the women's community and kitchens. And, um, you know, um, it, it encompassed a lot of um, queer activism, um, of anti-nuclear activism, all sorts of stuff. But those were driven by visions of a different world. It was really strongly vision-driven. What? Who do we want to be? What do we want life to look like? And I wonder if now is also a time for some reflection around what do we want life to look like? Because we've been so busy trying to fight a rearguard action to this quite unexpected assault. Yeah. Maybe it's time to start resetting vision. I think that sounds great. Like, <laughs> uh, and you know, as a as a preacher, that is something that we try to do. You know, every week is is give people some sense of vision long term uh can't always you know if you're if you're talking about peace and joy and hope and love yeah there are little there are little things we can do every day in the here and now but like uh those are always long-term projects you know we're trying to imagine a better world we're just peaceful beautiful world i do think our vision is more compelling (laughs) Uh, it's freer. It's more fun. <laughs> it's it's just a much better vision for humanity and society. And I I am confident that if we just continue to articulate it well, that we uh, we will hopefully over the long term see more success. And part of what is you know it's been so shocking about the last couple of years is we had actually gone through a period of great successes and great triumphs. That in yeah. some ways came quicker and faster, easier than we had imagined. So, and some of this is then backlash to that, right? We we did achieve, yeah. and so now this is backlash. And I think it's also important for us to keep that in mind. We have we we have the hardest work I think we have done, at least in the United States. The hardest work was just changing ordinary people's kind of hearts and minds around queer people. And that work, as Harvey Milk said a long time ago, is only going to be achieved by more and more people coming out. People just had to know gay, lesbian, bisexual, and trans people, and so in some, and we we spent decades just doing that. So every single person who they may not have been an activist, but every single person who ever came out and ever had to have this conversation with them, every single one is, is a little. Tri- triumph on the long-term process of getting this delivery. Because, I mean, at least the, in the United States, the polls are so clear about like the radical change in acceptance of, say, gay marriage, for instance. Uh, 
from overwhelming opposition to overwhelming support. And that swing occurred in about a 15-year period. So, it, 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 I, re- I, I, once I have to remind myself how exciting like 2015 was. <laughs> yeah. 2015 was a great year. That's a, that's the year we won gay marriage. My, I, my son was adopted. Donald Trump had not entered the picture yet, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. It wasn't that long ago. No, it wasn't. And again, I think the other important thing that you've highlighted is that there's such a shift going on in the church and the church has access to a whole bunch of regular folks. Mm-hmm. and congregations and i think maybe actually uh, that there's and, and you're in a very religious country mm. um you know there's maybe really important work through your community and your activism to yet be done this particular church i serve in i've been here 13 and a half years now uh, and you know it, it's the oldest protestant church in the city of Omaha, so they're one of the oldest in in the state of Nebraska. And, you know, Omaha, Nebraska, that's about as, you know, boring the country as you can get. Like, if you want just kind of boring heartland Americans, you know, this is it. And so this is this old historic church. It's 95% heterosexual, but, that's ne- but they, uh, in 2010, hired you know me as an openly gay man as their pastor, and and I, I, I felt at the time that that signified something in the broader movement, and I think I've had that effect, you know, coming into this. Other than the MCC pastor, it's the only openly gay pastor in Omaha when I got here. Now there's a bunch of us um, in multiple denominations. Great trans woman minister at the Second Unitarian Church, and. Um, it's just a different. When I first got here, someone said to me, "Like, I really think you're going to bring some some shakeup to this community that needs to be there." And I, I don't know how much I, you know, was me, and but it uh, it's a very different place than it was. But yet, it's still just you know, middle of America. I think you could probably there. take some credit, Scott. <laughs> Hope so. Yeah. No, I think that's really heartening and um, smart of the church. You know, faith is um, an important location in this world we're in. And if I may, I think the church in many forms has a lot to answer for in terms of some of the frameworks we work with today. Yeah. So for the the church to work to undo them, right? um, One of the things we did locally back in 2011, a group of local clergy, we wrote something called the Heartland Proclamation. And then we ended up getting a few hundred clergy from the area who signed on. And it, it opened with a, you know, a confessional statement. The, the reason we as religious leaders need to make this statement is because we are largely at fault for the damage that has been done to LGBT. Yeah. So owning that sin, confessing that sin, seeking forgiveness for that sin, and then committing to move forward. And I think that was a really important piece to occur here in Nebraska at kind of the beginning of organizing progressive people of faith to be supportive of LGBT causes. Sounds amazing. Is it um, online that, that we can have a look it at? It was. I don't know that that website is live. Yeah, and it's it was a, a really nice dot org. That's what I think mm-hmm. what it was. So. 
I think, um, yeah, it's another really nice example of, of being able to shift. And, and I do think you have to start with it. Own your part of the problem. Admit it. Yeah, I think there's something in there for all of us, you know, that ability to calmly examine a situation rather than reacting and heat driving because that removes your ability to think clearly anyway and um, to get educated about each other to be curious about each other um, it creates opportunities for shift yeah um, is there anything we haven't talked about today that you'd like to bring attention to well, I'd like to circle back around I think to some something because I think these challenges often it's possible that we can become cynical and despairing because when we lose things, uh, when we lose these battles and I like your emphasis on vision, you know, the long-term vision and that is exciting and that is fun and that is good, is good. And so we may not win, you know, every battle, but we really do need to stay focused on what are even the little and small things that we can do to take care of ourselves and then to do to try to influence those that we come in contact with. Not everyone's going to be an activist. Not everyone's a big public speaker. Not everyone's comfortable with that. But all of us can do our little part to be educated, to kind of try to keep that vision. And then work I think find, communi a find community with other people who feel the same way. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a really lovely way to um, bring this to a close. Um, it's inspiring and I love um, having had the opportunity to connect and explore your world. Hugely appreciate your time with us. I appreciate it. Yeah, nice and, to meet um, you. Nice to yeah. Chat. Look forward to hearing what else you achieve over there because um, I think your role is pretty significant. Well, thank you. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out the links in the description if you'd like to learn more about Scott's book or watch his TED Talk. Before we sign off, we want to remind you that our latest book, How to Talk With Your Kids About Porn, is out, and it's available both as a downloadable PDF and a physical copy. It covers what you need to know, why you need to know it, the good and bad of online porn, what kinds of conversations to have at what age, and how you can help your kids be safe online. You can find it over at our website or at sexandspace.com forward slash books. Please make sure to leave a like, follow, comment or review wherever you're tuning in from. Your support means the world to us. Until next time, safe travels and see you on the next episode.